Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, is, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants." So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the, of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them. And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, therefore they served before the king and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus this chapter opened with a devastation, a trial, the destruction of Jerusalem, the captivity of the children of Israel, and then their long journey to Babylon. Daniel and his friends find themselves in a strange place with strange gods, strange ways. They're invited to embrace their new home and their new name. And they're also given a new diet. Daniel and his friends want to obey God's word in this strange and difficult place. And right away we understand something that for these young men, it would have been much easier to serve God in Jerusalem than in Babylon. In Jerusalem, they have the temple of God. They're surrounded by Jews. They're surrounded by people who embrace what they embrace and believe what they believe. But remember, there was difficulty and trial. And even the nation itself became deeply divided as in rebellion and disobedience 
many of the people decided that they weren't going to honor God and they weren't going to serve God. And this is one of the reasons why they found themselves in captivity. Daniel and his friends want to obey the Lord. And remember, in one sense, they're in this place of captivity because of their failure to obey God. And sometimes we find ourselves in the journey that we're taking and the decisions that we've made and the difficulties that we've experienced that we're beginning to reap the consequences of the life that we've lived. It would have been easy for Daniel and his friends to say, look, We're going to probably be better off if we just keep our mouths shut. If we keep our faith private. If we compromise our deeply held convictions. And this is probably a trial that each and every one of you will face before the end of the day. Do you believe God's word? Will you trust the Lord of the Bible? When you're faced with a test or a temptation, are you tempted to compromise your convictions? Are there lots of reasons why you find that honoring God and disobeying God becomes easier and easier But here's part of the point where you begin the discussion. It's to ask yourself in your heart, do I really want to honor God in the circumstance that I find myself in? In Proverbs, we read in chapter 16, verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And some of you might be facing challenges at work or at school or even at home. Faithfulness to God invites the favor of God. It's going to take faith and favor and trust, and resolve, and obedience to overcome the tests and the temptations and the pressures of the world. It's also going to require, (laughs) I'm going to suggest to you, measured doses of God's favor. God was calling Daniel to a life of revelation from God. But that revelation is going to require separation from sin. Now, I want to be very clear here. Do you have to be separated from sin in order to get saved? No, if you're a sinner, you can come to God now. You can trust him now. You can believe him now. You can come to Jesus by grace through faith. What are you telling me? I don't have to leave my sinful relationship. I don't need to to leave my life of sin. No, what I'm telling you is you have to want to. You have to be willing to want to, you go, where you say, you know what, I want my life to be different. I want my life to be different in Christ. Saved people act differently. Daniel is going to live a life that is going to require him to hear from God. 
In order to hear from God, he's going to have to separate himself from sin. And by the way, this is going to prove to be a principle, Christian, in your life. Do you want to hear from God? Do you want to hear his voice? Do you want to hear him and then trust him and then walk with him? Separation from sin makes revelation from him possible. So Daniel's going to propose a 10-day test in verses 12 through 14. He's going to create an experiment in order to meet the situation that he finds himself. And so look again in verse 8. It says, but Daniel purposes in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. In the beginning of the chapter, Daniel and his friends, remember, were given a new diet in verse 5, new names in verses 6 and 7. And so Daniel is going to purpose in his heart that he doesn't want to defile himself with the king's delicacies. Why does this even matter? Daniel could have reasoned or rationalized that the new diet was just part of his lot in Babylon. The decision of Daniel to, to not simply... To, to do something or to refrain from doing something doesn't just involve how he's feeling. You are making a tremendous mistake if you're thinking, well, you know, Daniel is a vegetarian and his preference is vegetables over meat. This isn't an issue of preference. This is an issue of the scripture. You see, the Mosaic law forbade the Jew from eating certain meats. Daniel was well aware that the request that he's talking about, his desire to remain faithful to God and to observe the laws of kosher, if you will, is going to result in a confrontation, maybe even an explosion, maybe even an execution. He understands that to even bring this up could create a problem because again in that culture and society when the king says I want you to do this and I want you to eat that in this particular instance their refusal to do what the king wants could be seen as an act of rebellion and and disloyalty Th this isn't just about quote unquote keeping the law of God from the Babylonian perspective, this is about whether or not you're going to be loyal in the world in which you live. Daniel is aware that this is going to create a problem, but note what Daniel does. He is going to ask to try to resolve this problem in a way where they can accomplish their goals and he can accomplish his goals. So how is Daniel possibly going to make the chief of the eunuchs understand about the law of Moses or the dietary restrictions? Because Daniel's using a very strong word, defile himself, to describe the consequences of eating the meats that are offered to the idols in the Babylon pantheon of gods. So think about what's happening. The servers appear. They're bearing lavish plates of exotic meats. 
Mmm, look what's on there. Honey baked ham. Babylonian shrimp gumbo. Chaldean cutlets. Man, it's like a massive all-you-can-eat buffet. It's pagan papados. <laughs> so Daniel decides he's going to come up with an alternate plan. Now remember what's going on in the text. The alternate plan is I want to obey God. I want to honor God. I want to separate myself from sin so that I can know him and love him and honor him. This isn't a trivial matter. It isn't superficial or inconsequential. According to God's word, the food was unclean. So God's word contained repeated warnings about what you're supposed to do and eat and what you're not supposed to do and eat and about repeated warnings about wine. In the ancient culture of the Jews, people go, well, the Jews drank wine. It's, it's true that they did drink wine, but they also diluted strong drink to about three parts to six parts of water for every one part of the wine. If you don't believe me, read Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. And remember, the Babylonians didn't dilute their wine. And it's more than just a refusal to dilute their wine. They would take their wine and they would pour it on the pagan altars as an act and as an expression of worship to the Babylonian deities. And so the battle begins in Daniel's mind. The expression he purposed in his heart speaks of resolution and conviction. It's a strong conviction that cannot be ignored and that he has to act upon. This isn't an issue, like I said earlier, of preference. It's an issue of obedience. And so again, why does Daniel and his friends take such a strong stand? In order for you to understand that, you have to understand that these foods were designated unclean under the law of Moses and forbidden. The information concerning kosher is found in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 1 through 23, and Deuteronomy chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 21. Pagan nations often sacrificed to pagan gods. Remember, they didn't go to King Supers or, or Vaughn's or whatever supermarkets we have around here. You couldn't go to the, down the aisle and go, oh, there's a roast. Oh, oh there's turkey. Uh, imagine you go to King Supers and you go to the meat section and it said, offered to Baal. And see, if you understood in that culture, well, what does that mean, offered to Asmodeus or offered to Satan? Uh, can you imagine you go to this place and they slit the bull's throat and they invite demonic beings to inhabit the cow and they pray that the presence of demons would come into the cow and they're hoping, hoping, hoping that by partaking of the meat of the demon-possessed animal that they themselves would take on part of the attributes or the characteristics or the favor of the deity. See, in our culture and society, we just eat, eat the meatball. We don't care where it came from. We, we, we never think of it in terms of, of a spiritual event. And so you have to understand 
that's why Daniel and his friends are so uncomfortable. They see themselves as being asked to declare love and loyalty and honor to false gods, which is forbidden in Exodus chapter 34. And they may have been uncomfortable with the extravagances of luxury or with the lure of materialism or the expense of simplicity and humility before God. We don't know, but they understand that in order for them to maintain their identity in the circumstance that they find themselves in, they're going to have to draw some lines in the sand of what they will and they won't do. Remember, the Babylonians have no desire to honor God or the God of the Bible or what the Bible says. But Daniel is determined to honor God and determined to do what the Bible says. And the moment that you decide, you determine in your heart that you're going to honor God And what the Bible says, you will immediately set yourself at odds with the people who are around you. We all face crisis. We all live in a world that invites us to compromise our convictions, to disobey God's commands, to succumb and submit to the world around us that insists that personal preference and opinion is more important than the revelation of God and what the Bible says. In Russia and China and North Korea, they have re-education camps to help their citizens Their reluctant citizens embrace Marxist, atheist, communism. Islam settles for harsh taxes and second-class citizenship, banishment. And if none of those things work, in certain cultures, they require execution. Here in the United States of America, it's a little less traumatic But slowly but surely, we're living in a culture that's beginning to insist that you think the way that it thinks, that you embrace the values that it it shares. But know what happens with Daniel and his friends. God gives them the ability to have favor and goodwill in verse 9. Don't overlook that because it's very, very important. It's wonderful when God brings his favor and his goodwill. You may be in a marriage or you may be at work or you may be at a school where, again, you're surrounded by people who don't embrace your views, who don't believe the Bible, who, who, who don't even for a moment believe that the revelation of God in Christ could possibly be true. But you've been given favor for some reason that's inexplicable to you, they like you. They might even have deep affection for you. And you might be thinking, well, they probably like me because I'm a likable person. That might be. But it could also be the favor of God. You might find yourself in a situation where God is elevating you and raising you up in the world in which you live because he has a special plan for you. 
and a special purpose for you. God wants to use you where you are. And it's okay to pray for God's favor, to say, Lord, Lord, will you please give me favor with my husband, with my wife? Will you give me favor with my boss? Will you give me favor with the officials who are around us? Will you give us favor so, so that we can do our best in the world in which we live? Paul writes about it in the book of Romans. He, he says, so far as it's possible, live it all with, in peace with all people so much as it depends upon you. And you know what? I pray for God's favor on our church, in this community, among the elected officials, among the police officers, among all of the people who work and, and, and serve in this community so that we can find ourselves in a favorable position so that we can love them and serve them and minister to them and share with them Christ. But look at this steward's real reluctance in verse 10. It says, And the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. In other words, the eunuch is saying, hey, look, I know you have your deeply held religious beliefs and your convictions, but I answer to somebody and the king wants to make sure that your loyalty is with him and that you can accomplish exactly what the king wants. The chief of the eunuchs doesn't fear God. He fears the king of Babylon. He fears King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we know that the Bible says that fear of men is a snare. But just for a moment, let's put ourselves in this chief steward's shoes. Remember, this is the king that seared the eyes of Zedekiah with a red-hot poker. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. The king of Babylon also killed all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes. He bound him with bronze chains to carry him off to Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 39, verses six through seven. This king will kill his own men in order to throw the Hebrew children into the fiery furnace in just a few chapters. In the next chapter, he's going to threaten and he has all the ability to make good his threat that he is going to kill all of the chief counselors. He's going to kill all of the magicians unless they not only identify his dream and interpret his dream, but he's also saying, oh, by the way, I had a dream and I want you to tell me what it was and then I want you to interpret what it means. Sure, king, tell us what it is and we'll give you the interpretation. He goes, uh, I'm not going there. You're going to have to tell me what I dreamed. No one's ever asked something like that before. Yeah, the only way you're gonna be able to pull this off is to have a supernatural intervention. This eunuch knew that in the world in which he lived in, disappointing this king was not a good idea. And you might live in that same world where people express their disappointment in ways that are troubling. I wish I could tell you that everyone who honors God and obeys God and serves God, oh, they're going to get to keep their job and everything is going to turn out fine, but that's not true. 
Sometimes the Lord is going to make a supernatural mechanism where you get to go through this situation. And sometimes he's going to save you in the situation. Look what it says about his reasonable recommendation that Daniel makes in verses 11 through 14. It says, so Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and let the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. What he's basically saying is, look, if, our, if we can accomplish everything you want, health, in the circumstance, if you want us to look healthy and vibrant in the situation that we find ourselves in, and if this doesn't work, then you get to do with us as you please. And note what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we'll start eating the king's food. It just means if, if that means you kill us, you kill us. If you get rid of us, if you wash us out of Babylon University, you wash us out or whatever it is that, that happens. So Daniel proposes this test. And I want you to note what's repeated for 10 days in verse 12. And, and again, oh, you'll see it repeated again in verse 14. Why 10 days? I'm going to suggest to you that in the Bible, 10 often is the number of judgment. You'll remember that when God gave the commandments from Sinai, how many were there? Ten. There are ten commandments. So ten becomes a number for a test. In the Bible, it can be the number of a measurement. It can be the number of a testimony. Vegetables, in verse 12, are those things that are grown from seeds. And the law of Moses placed no restrictions on things that were grown from seed. And so in the law of Moses, if it emerged from a seed, then there were no prohibitions or restrictions concerning its consumption. Some Bible teachers suggest that the vegetables and the water might have incorporated a kind of fast that Daniel went through or a cleansing that he and his friends went through, that this was part of a fast or a cleansing to express their mourning and exile. But there's nothing in the text that would seem to indicate that. It also isn't a situation where keeping kosher means that God loves you more or cares about you more. That's not what is the key. The key is God's favor and God's commitment. And so he listened and consented in verse 14. So, and I want you to just note something else. Daniel doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't argue. He doesn't threaten to file a lawsuit. He doesn't go, if you make me eat this stuff, well, I'm taking you to court. What do you suppose would have happened to Daniel? Um, hey, court's in session. I find you guilty. Off with his head. This wasn't an alternative for Daniel. Daniel is going to exercise wisdom and good sense 
and good judgment as he offers an alternative, a solution that avoids offense and enables him and his friends to remain faithful to God. And you should take a clue from the text. It isn't to argue, complain, or, 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 or be a pill. In other words, it's, it's to pray and say, Lord, will you give me wisdom and grace as I try to come up with an alternative that's going to honor you and please you, but that I can still keep my job or make my boss happy or work in the circumstances that I find myself in. And so they're young, they're in captivity. They're in captivity in part because of their parents and other people's failure to keep the law and obey the law. Now, I, I want you to just understand the, the immensity and the enormity of what's happening in perhaps the world's most sinful city. They resolve that they want to be pure. And now all of a sudden you understand something when you send your children to the University of Boulder or, or when you send them to somewhere far away and they're now in an environment not where the people want to honor God, please God, obey God. They're surrounded in a circumstance where it's so easy to dishonor and disobey God. But in the most difficult situation, they want to remain pure. If purity isn't a priority in your life, victory over sin will remain elusive. Let me repeat that. If purity isn't a priority in your life, victory will remain elusive. If you keep finding a reason to click on the button that takes you to the pornographic site, if you keep on returning to the bottle, if you keep returning to the drug, if you keep returning to that thing which is the source of bondage in your life, you are not going to experience victory. We all have trials. We all have tests. We all have temptations. Daniel doesn't make excuses. He doesn't plead special circumstances. He doesn't rationalize God's command in the Bible. He doesn't say, when in Babylon, we have to do what the Babylonians do. And he certainly doesn't say, well, nobody's perfect. Jerusalem is in ruins. My people are slaves. Whatever God's plans were, they don't seem to apply to me. But Daniel doesn't believe that. He believes that there's a God who loves him and cares about him and has brought him to this place so that he could be used by God in the circumstance that he finds himself in. So the first thing that you should notice is inner conviction. Some of the food failed the kosher requirements. But in spite of that, and by the way, like I said, if you want to know about the law of kosher, you can find it in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. But I also want to remind you that in Leviticus are also the laws of atonement in verses 1 through 10, or chapters 1 through 10, about how to be saved. And then come the laws of defilement, chapters 11 through 15. 
He's going to understand these things. The Lord instructed Moses about what was clean and what was unclean in the area of food, in the area of birth, in the area of death, in the area of disease, in the area of personal relationships. In chapters 21 and 22 of of Leviticus, it instructs the priest on how to be separate from sin. But it doesn't just simply talk about how to be separate from sin. It also talks about how to be devoted to the Lord. You see, the Bible isn't asking you to just simply separate yourself from sin. It is that, but it's even more. It's to separate yourself from sin and now connect yourself to the God of the Bible. This is why the Bible says, don't just stop lying, start telling the truth. Don't just stop stealing, start working. Don't just stop drinking wherein is excess. But walk in the Spirit. The Bible isn't asking you to stop doing something in order to punish you or hurt you. And so the Bible asks you to walk away from impurity, but then to put on purity. Are some foods healthier than others? Yes. But what a Christian eats or drinks or fails to eat and drink isn't the test of biblical spirituality. Christians are free to eat what they want. But keep in mind 1 Corinthians 10.31, quote, therefore, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. In the New Testament, Jesus says it isn't what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart. That's where the place of impurity is at risk. So put yourself in Daniel's place for a moment. The law forbids meats offered to idols. Daniel could not have have lived on the diet without breaking the law of Moses. And so in the Eastern culture, to share a meal with someone was in effect to commit yourself to friendship. And so in one sense, it's not just simply about the laws of kosher, but it's also about company and friendship. And I'm going to suggest to you again that there is a, a, a further meaning if you want to use that term. And that is Daniel and his friends are going to have to ask and answer the question, what is going to mark our life? They're committed to remaining pure. They're committed to obeying the God of the Bible. They're committed to doing this. Even if it results in disgrace or danger. The changing of the names and the diet, again, remember it was to provide a subtle indoctrination in an ever-increasing infiltration to chip away at Daniel's identity. It's to chip away at his friend's identity. It's to chip it away so that they could come to the conclusion that they're not really children of God, that God doesn't really care about them, that the promises in the Bible doesn't really matter, and that whatever future they have, it's going to be apart from what God has said and now all of a sudden you begin to understand it and that's why I'm saying what I'm saying to you you're living in a world where people are going to constantly try to get you to believe that your relationship with Jesus doesn't matter and what Jesus wants from you and for you doesn't matter every Christian is going to face a crisis of authority by the way 
Do you know what the word autonomy means? It comes from two Greek words, autos, me, nomos, law. Autonomy means I'm the law, that the origin of the law is self, opinion, preference. If you've ever uttered these words, what I say goes, you're acting in an autonomous fashion. The Bible says that the revelation of God is the source of information about God and about Jesus. And so everyone is going to be faced with this alternative. What is the source of authority? Where am I going to get my information? On what basis am I going to make my decisions? And so, in this instance, the authorities will go along with Daniel and give him the freedom to exercise his deeply held religious convictions without too much interference. But like I said, it may not always be so. It may not always turn out the way that you had hoped. Sometimes people will say, in order for you to do this, in order to have this job, you're going to have to do this. And you need to be able to say, in order to honor God and obey God, I am not going to break the law. I'm not going to do something that's illegal or immoral or disobedient towards God. Daniel and his friends are going to face punishment for obeying God later rather than obeying the authorities in high school and in college and in university, at least in my own life, Satan's goal was always to shake my faith. It was always to try to say, no, there is an authority that you can have apart from God's word. You can have authority from other sources we live in a world where the theories of men are invariably placed above the truth of God. But I couldn't help but remember what Jesus said. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Freedom doesn't produce truth. Truth produces freedom. And who is the source of truth? Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. You'll know the truth. Where does truth come from? It comes from Jesus. What does truth provide? Very real freedom. And this, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is the difference between autonomy, self-rule, and freedom, which means you're being ruled by God and by his word. Autonomy won't bring freedom. It will bring bondage. Freedom will bring peace and joy and grace and mercy. Daniel's inner conviction was also helped by God's assistance in verse 14. And so the powers that be consented to the test. Daniel's going to need God's help. And Daniel and his friends are going to face more crisis and more moral and identity issues. 
And so they're going to have to ask themselves the question, what's going to be the ultimate source of right and wrong? What's going to determine their belief and their behavior? Is it going to be personal preference and opinion? Or is it going to be what God has to say? And so we see the results quickly. Verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter. I know some of you hate that word to go, couldn't they just say more attractive? Well, in that culture, (laughs) fat means this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. In flesh, then all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies, thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. For these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature, wisdom. Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they would be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. Understand what's happened. There's a 10-day test, okay? Okay. They pass the test. Then there's a three-year training. And in the three-year training, they excel above everyone around them. And then they are brought before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviews them. And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. They not only graduated at the top of their of their class, but they demonstrate a proficiency that is so undeniable that this king is basically in effect saying, I want the best and the brightest as I have to think about how we're going to govern this empire. And it says, in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians, astrologers who were in all of his realm. 10 times better is... A superlative expression in the, in the Hebrew language. Does it mean literally that they're 10 times smarter than everybody around them? Maybe. But minimum what it means is that they are head and shoulders above everyone. It's a superlative to describe a type of excellence that is undeniable. And then it says, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus rather than just tell you the dates and, and go down the chronology, let me, let me help you understand what that means. Daniel is going to live to see the captivity come to an end. In that single sentence, we go from the very beginning of Daniel's journey to the very end. In other words, in, encapsulated in this is he's, he's going to just remind the reader that I haven't told you all of the painful situations that I've got to face, but in the end, I am going to live to see Jeremiah's prophecy come true and that the children of Israel are going to leave Babylon and they're going to get to return to Jerusalem. He lives in Babylon but his heart's always in Jerusalem. We live here, but our heart's always in heaven, isn't it? We look around ourselves and we see the world in which we live, but we know we don't belong here and we know we're not going to stay here. The children of Israel are healthy. The fears of the chief, chief eunuch proves unfounded. Scripture legalists 
will sometimes say, see, I told you, look, vegetarianism is superior to honey-baked ham and shrimp gumbo. That's actually not what the text is saying. What the text is saying is that because they choose to obey God in the circumstances that they find themselves in, that's what brings God's pleasure and God's favor. Paul writes that God created foods to be received with thanksgiving for those who believe and know the truth. It's okay to use your Papado's gift card. Remember what the Bible says. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. The Bible says, for everything that's created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God in prayer, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. So in short order, God gives these four men spiritual revelation, verse 17. God gave them knowledge and skill and the literature and wisdom. And Daniel has understanding of visions and dreams. Really? Wow, what does that mean? God entrusts these young men with a supernatural capacity to acquire information and learning, but he's also going to use them as a supernatural receptacle of revelation. He's going to be able to talk to them. Has God given you a superior understanding of things? Then praise him. But beware, be careful, be humble. The same God who gives things to us can just as easily take them away. But with spiritual revelation comes royal elevation. I want you to see the progress in the text. Separation from sin spiritual revelation, royal elevation. They're placed in a position of prominence. The king summons them, examines them. This is the king who has already met and conquered the royal armies of Egypt. This is the person who's already subdued the world. And again, Nebuchadnezzar is going to ask them hard questions. This is the first king, but it won't be the last king. Cyrus will be the king of the Medes and the Persians. He will be the one who will declare and write the decree that releases the children of Israel from their captivity. But I want you to think about this. I don't have any way of proving it from the text, and I don't know if it's true. But I wonder if Daniel was tasked with the job of writing for the king the release of the Jewish people. You know why I think that this is an important thing to think about? Because the moment that you purpose in your heart that you're going to separate from sin and that God begins to speak to you and you become a receptacle of revelation instead of living in captivity, instead of living in 
darkness and wickedness, instead of being a drunk or a drug addict or, or always preoccupied with, with sexual immorality, you get to be a source of purity as you point people to the reality that there's a God who liberates people from their captivity and sets them free. Amen, Amen is right. Because you're able to say, you know what? Jesus saved me. Jesus healed me. Jesus changed me. And you become a source of hope and inspiration as people look at you and they want what you have. They want peace and they want grace and they want the knowledge that a real God is still in the business of changing people's life and so God blesses Daniel and his friends with superior wisdom and revelation in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 30 it says therefore the Lord God of Israel says I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever but now the Lord says far be it from me for those who honor me I will honor and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed he basically saying, honor me and I'll honor you. I'll give you favor. I'll provide opportunity. And one day, you'll stand before a king. Not the king of Babylon, but the king of heaven. Our question, our passage prompts a question. Are you willing to act out or act on your deeply held convictions about what the Bible says? No matter the cost, no matter the consequence. There are a few principles in the passage that you should be able to take away. Number one, inner convictions can overcome outward pressures to compromise. Inner convictions can overcome outward pressure to compromise. It's okay for you to say, I'm not going to do that. I think that that would dishonor God. I think that that would displease God. That's not for me. And number two, God-honoring convictions yield God-given rewards. When everyone was eating at the king's table and drinking the king's wine, Daniel said, no. I read a story about from my friend Jerry Vines. He used to pastor Riverside Baptist Church. He was the professor of preaching and homiletics at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. I love the story that he tells. He says, and he came on my radio program. He, he, he basically tells of his first visit to Mercer University where a bunch of kids got together. And they went out for a drive and someone offered him a beer. And Vines decided that he was going to get out of the car and he was going to walk back to the school. And a classmate said, where are you going, Vines? He said, I'm walking back to school. He said, I've come here to study and to preach the gospel. And I'm not going to start my college education by taking my first drink of beer. And they said, all right. Vines, get in the car. If you won't drink, neither will we. Now I want you to pause for a moment. 
and think about that. We live in a culture and a society that says, do what I'm doing. But every once in a while, you might find yourself in a circumstance where you go, I'm not going to do that. And instead of the people saying, okay, do whatever you want, they might say, I think I'm going to do what you're doing. I think I'm going to honor God too. I think, I'm, I think that this, it's a better judgment for me not to drink and drive or to drug and drive. It's better for me not to be involved in sexual immorality. It's better for me not to walk in darkness. It's better for me to make healthier decisions about my life. Will that always be the case? No. In our culture, no matter how many times you decide to do what's right, they may decide to do what's wrong. But make no mistake about it. You can make the decision to honor God. And he'll strengthen you in that decision. We're going to have communion now in just a moment. And so I'm going to have Carolyn come back. And we're going to uh, close our service here in just a moment. But I just want to remind you. That in this first chapter, it begins with a radical commitment to separate from sin, which in fact leads to this mechanism where they're going to be able to hear from God and honor God. I hope that's the case for you as well. That the decision to love him and honor him and serve him is going to result in unbelievable opportunities with your family and with your friends so that you influence them rather than them influencing you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, even as we worship you and we take this time to have communion. Lord, I pray that during the course of, of our worship, that each and every man and woman who knows you and loves you, that, that again, as they take communi communion, that it's not just a religious ritual. That it isn't just something, well, that's what we do. We take communion. Lord, I pray that in their heart, they would use it as an opportunity to once again declare their love and loyalty to Jesus to declare the love and loyalty to the sacrifice of Jesus, to the shed blood of Jesus for what Jesus has done in order to wash us and cleanse us and then strengthen us and empower us for the life that you've called us to lead. And so, Lord, I pray for every man and every woman as we worship the Lord in these few songs and as we take communion, that, that the moment that we take the communion, we drink this cup and we eat this wafer, we are reminding ourselves that this is a sort of vow renewal, that we want to love you and honor you. We want to purpose in our heart not to defile ourselves with sin, that we want to separate ourselves from sin. 
and then trust Jesus' presence in our life to take us in the direction that we need to go. In Jesus' name, amen.